This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Don't forget to send me a text, 2057, or email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here's a funny thing, isn't it? We, uh, especially us listening and on this radio show, we find that the world's become bewildering everywhere we look. You know, we're thinking, oh, my God, how could they be so mad? How could this be? And we see that we're now paying people not to work. We're penalizing and taxing those who do. Uh, we pay women to have babies without a husband. We have instant divorces. Um, we teach our kids paganism and call it science. Oh, <laughs> that boys can be girls. Girls can be boys. Uh, that there are two opposing versions of the treaty, and so it's all a fraud. Um, we got locked up in our houses for our own good. It was for our health. We're busy reversing the Industrial Revolution because save the planet, global warming, uh, no evidence of it. We can't have free speech uh, because contrary opinions are dangerous and need to be cancelled. The wonderful thing that was the internet is now censored uh, for everything, it seems, except pornography. And the more hardcore pornography somehow can be there, but try and talk to your friends on Facebook about COVID and you'll be shut down. And we're living in a world where crime pays. And here in New Zealand, this wonderful, harmonious society where we jogged along, the most important thing has become race. And it's easy to see these things as discrete little points, but I'm coming to a view through the guest we've had on the show that there's a big picture here. There's, you know, it needs to be all tied together. And so my next guest is a wonderful man called Ashley Church. I knew him when I was in politics. He'll correct me where I'm wrong, but he was, I think, the executive director or the CEO of the Property Institute. And he can explain that to us as we go through the interview. Uh, he was involved in politics, always, always a friendly guy always a guy prepared to debate, never get angry. He was on TV a lot, um, involved in politics. I knew he was a business person, and I knew that he was um, a property investor, obviously, given his background. But I've got him on the show because he's also been reading and thinking and trying to understand what has happened in New Zealand. And so it's good morning to you, Ashley. Good morning, Rodney. How are you? And you're not new to our listeners because you've been no. with Paul. No, not on, the, not on the topic we're talking about today. But, yeah, we've we've had a couple of chats. So, uh, so uh, hey, and just by way of not a correction, but just an elaboration, you and I actually met when I was the CEO of the New Market Business Association, that's um, right. You took over from Cameron Brewer. I did indeed. I was there for a few years before the, and then then uh, moved on to the Property Institute. So uh, so that was sort of 12, 15 years ago. It was a while back now. Oh, that's funny. I had it the other way around. I thought yeah. you were in the Property Institute and then went to the New Market. I was pro Auckland Property Investors Association in the early 2000s on the Property that's Institute. That's when I met you. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's right. Oh, well, and there's that hmm. wonderful lady that worked at the New Market Business Association. Die Goldsworthy. Um, Die Goldsworthy. 
Died recently retired, but uh, she's an institution. I didn't think she could retire. I didn't either, but apparently she did. So <laughs> the unthinkable happened. She was such, she's such a wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah. Here we are. We're having this insider discussion already. <laughs> so what do we, what do you call it? What do you call, I know I've had Prof Elizabeth Rater on. And she doesn't like the phrase Western civilization because it tends to locate it uh, for the, our opponents in a racial geographical place. Mm. And she calls it universalist thinking, uh, where all humankind are one and equal uh, before the law. And so she doesn't like this Western um, civilization. I still use it as a shorthand because that's how it's brought up. How do you describe it? And what's happening to it, and is it being undone? Yeah, well, I describe it like you do as Western civilization, and and in very general terms, because there's all sorts of moving parts to this. But Western civilization for 350 odd years, basically um, contingent during the period of what's called the Protestant Reformation, uh, was a a force to be reckoned with in respect of its its impact on the world. And and retrospectively, we can look back on that and say. Lots of people say that was a bad thing. They talk about colonization and all sorts of other things that happened as a consequence. But the thing that that, that did do, uh, that 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 uh, that Protestant Reformation, was it changed the way in which the world viewed the importance of the individual. So, so I don't want to bore people, but if you go back to the period prior to that, which was a period in the Western world that was dominated by something called Catholicism, which was a collectivist view of, of society, the Protestant Reformation focused on the individual, not just on the individual in terms of, of the importance of the individual, but also in terms of the responsibilities that the individual had to that society. And that probably reached its peak during the Victorian era under Queen Victoria in the 19th century. Um, and it became uh, a period of time which, in my view, uh, was the epitome or the peak of Western civilization. Um, Just interrupting but, there, actually. Sure. I, I, I hadn't picked what you're saying because I'm new to all of this, but mm. I can see it that not we're not being derogatory of Catholicism in a way, but historically that Catholicism was authority from on high from yes. the Pope and Protestant Protestantism is fragmented how interesting yeah so it's not that's, it's that's not, not Judeo Christian Christianity it's a particular branch of it, it Protestantism is. it is interesting oh my goodness that's not, and that's not necessarily a criticism of Catholicism it's just what it is it was it was a collectivist yes belief system for over a thousand years. And you can see the impact on that incidentally in colonization in places like South America, which were predominantly Catholic, where, where the ethos was quite different to what it was in places like North America, Australia, New Zealand, and other places that were formed by, by uh, the Protestants. And interestingly, if you look at colonialism, colonialism had two guiding imperatives. One of them was the um, was trade, obviously. So it was about trading and about expanding the the empire's remit. But the other one was about religion. So so the colonial imperative that happened over that period of time was the battle between Catholicism and Protestantism to get the countries first and to bring their version of Christianity to them. And it's interesting because when you look at it in that context, you can understand why it happened the way that it did and over the period of time that it did. Um, but that, uh, you look like you're going to say something. <laughs> well, because... Um... 
Ashley and I can see each other, dear listeners, yeah. and I can see he's got a behind him a bookcase chocker block full of very interesting books that I am trying to read the titles of to see what <laughs> I should read next. But this is so stunning. By the way, you and I couldn't have this conversation on mainstream media. No. No, definitely Because not. you can't say that colonization was okay or good, and you can't say that one value set is manifestly and obviously better than another. No, correct on both scores. And in, don't get me wrong, there was aspects of colonization that I think we should cringe over, and that's and that's on both sides. Both the but that's human life. Absolutely, and that's because people are involved, and that's a, that's yeah. a phrase I keep coming back to. Wherever people are involved, there's yeah. going to be mistakes. But just to finish what I was saying, so due the twentieth, obviously following into the twentieth century, that started well, didn't start, but in the in the um, the, the the twenty teens, we had the First World War, we had the rise of Nazism leading into the Second World War. Um, and we had this, again, this collectivist mentality around God, King and country, which kind of drove the response to the Nazis and the way that the world reacted to that and what it did. And that all carried on right through until, and I can't put an exact point on it, but let's call it 1950 for want of a better year. From about 1950 onward, Rodney, society started to decline by which I mean that the values that we held dear for 300 years started to be less important to us. And that's happened slowly at first. It happened through the 50s and through the 60s. Um, there were a number of morals revolutions that took place. People can think of things like the uh, the the, uh, the hippie movement in the 60s and that started in San Francisco and spread out through North America and the rest of the world and some of the other uh, revolutions that took place over that period of time. But underlying all of those was a movement away from the, from what was seen as the authoritarian structure of, of Christianity or faith, if I can put it another way. And so things that you and I were brought up with in the, in the 50s and 60s got less and less important. And what's happened over the last essentially 70 years is that we've gone from a society that held common values and that believed essentially in the same things and had common values with regard to what was right and wrong has moved now so far away from that that in 2023, uh, the value system that we hold as a nation and as a Western world is completely different to what it was 50 years ago. Now, where you sit on that depends on your politics. So, so if you're on the left, and that, even that's unfair because the traditional left used to hold the same values as a traditional centre-right. But on the far left, those values now are much more around sort of the idea that we can build our own utopian society, that God is dead, um, that those values are no longer appropriate. In fact, so much so that we've almost flipped on those values and we've gone on the direction of the sorts of things that you talked about in your introduction. Um, and, and the sorts of things that we previously held to be important and we held to be uh, the things that upheld the basis of our society are now regarded as evil and things to be destroyed and and done away with. And our children taught that, that those things are bad and that they should reject them. So it's a complete transformation of society in a relatively short space of time. And someone of my age, I'm 66, yeah. I grew up um, with a set of values that were instilled in me, and I would call them Sunday school values. Yep. And exactly. we had them at school. We had them at Sunday school. We had them from our parents. And we just thought those values were taken for granted yep. by everyone. Yep. And bit by bit, we've been presented with arguments that over here, look, 
you should be able, you know, marriage can't be sacred and before God. That's old hat. And look, if the wife's getting beaten and the dad's drunk, it's probably best for the kids. They just get a quick divorce and move on. And it happens. And you think, oh, well, that sounds reasonable. You know, and this, this young girl over here has got pregnant and, you know, bit difficult. We'll give her a bit of money. Okay. And bit by bit, there is a slippery slope. Because we didn't hold fast to our values, we've ended up where we are. And someone of my age and era are utterly confused by it because we can't believe how our leaders can be thinking the way they're thinking. Our leaders are symptomatic of the society in which they live. So if you want to find blame, the blame's not with the leaders, the blame no. the blame's with the society. They are they are simply a symptom of what they live. It's interesting you say that because I look at the National Party. I've been a national supporter for most of my life. And the National Party in 2023 is nothing like the National Party in 1987 when I stood for Napier as the national candidate. They, they couldn't be more different. They might as well be different parties. But they are symptomatic of that slide that's been progressively yes. taking place in society over that period of time. How much would you love it? If Chris Luxon could just say, yes, I'm a Christian. I, I, would, I would love it. And what's interesting about that is the reason he's not doing that is he's got people like Chris Bishop in his ear who are telling him that that would be the death of his, you know, his, 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 his. I think the opposite. I think that there is a significant, in fact, I know this is the case because I, I encounter them on places like LinkedIn and Facebook. There's a significant proportion of New Zealand society that is Christian but doesn't attend church uh, that would actually respond quite positively to that. Uh, but but I, he's he's just too, too fearful to do it. There's 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 not the courage to do that, and there's the fear because remember what they're focusing on at the moment. They're not focusing on the right. They're focusing on predominantly women in the left who could go either way on their vote, and they don't want to scare the horses on that. And so that's that small coterie of people, cohort of people, which is essentially deciding which way the election will go in nationals' mind, yes. is what's holding their policy positions on a whole range of stuff. And. I now describe myself, probably in this past two weeks, I've decided to describe myself as Christian. I feel a bit phony doing that because (laughs) I haven't done the hard yards. You know what I mean? I do. But I'm happy to nail my colours to the mast. And for literally 59 years, I could never have imagined saying that. Can I make you feel a little bit better by saying that I've been a Christian since I was about 18 and I'm 59 now, so what's that, 41 odd years, and for a very large chunk of that time, I feel like a fraud because although I I described myself by that label, um, I I don't really consider that I bought into the values and the sorts of things that I talk about now until Mm. much, much more recently. I thought I did. I thought I did at the time. I thought I'd done everything that I needed to. But uh, but I, but I'm not all that different to you in respect of hey, the, the feeling of of what I believe. Well, I feel as though I've got to start reading and reading the Bible in particular to to be fully fledged. But I'm happy to. I quite like it because I don't know. I quite like being a rebel and a revolutionary, <laughs> and I don't know what could be more revolutionary and more rebellious and declare self to be Christian. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Given the yeah. society, and we've got a a leader of the National Party who goes to church every Sunday and can't say that he's Christian or that his daily life is going to be guided by Christ. I mean, that, and my, my, my point that I was trying to make was this. Even before 
I was a believer and Christian, I would always vote for a guy that was a believer. Yep. Because I want my leaders to believe in something and to explain what they believe in. I don't want them pre-formulating their answers and working on policy and targeting particular voters. I want them to be libertarians, socialists, free marketeers, Christians. I want them. I want to be able to sum them up and what they'll do in a word. And know where they will be on issues that we haven't yet confronted. And you can do that within the context of a belief system where you understand what that belief system generally entails. Mm. So I, I absolutely agree with you. Do you think we're jumping around, but it's so <laughs> gorgeous to have you on, Ashley, and um, help me uh, to where I am. You've got me to say I'm a Christian, which is a big shift for me. I'm, <laughs> I'm shaking a little bit. Um, do you think the media play still an inordinate amount on the minds of politicians. Oh, totally. Totally, because the media shapes the public impression. Interestingly, even within the Christian community, who should know better, media shapes perceptions, and it does that through, through the use of words of power, by which I mean there are certain things that you can say or there are certain phrases that you can use that will determine... Uh, what people think. I mean, the most obvious example of that is the use of the word Nazi that's thrown around by lots of people with, you know, frivolity. But there are other words that are less sort of symbolic than that that still have the ability to change people's perceptions uh, uh, very quickly. You know, National is doing a really good job at the moment of describing labour as wasteful. And uh, that's a really powerful word. And if you keep saying it, um, it embeds itself in people's minds, and eventually they get the message. So, so media are the, are the conveyors of those those messages, and the, and 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 I think that the uh, both both the major parties are very aware of that, and so they've been very careful. But I think, you know, and I might be wrong. Maybe I'm naive. I think there's a, and maybe Winston Peters at some stage in his career, not now, but at some stage in his career, might have played this part. There is room for somebody to just come out and say what they mean. There is room for somebody who just says, you know what, this is what I think. And you know, take it or leave it. I, I think that there is an ability for people to respond to honesty because they're not seeing it at the moment from anybody. They're seeing sound bites and they're seeing very polished performances from people who are seeking their votes, not necessarily their hearts and minds. Two things to that occur to me. One is um, you're right, and all of us think to ourselves, "I'm not influenced by the media because I know them to be all liars and charlatans." Yet. Mm. Every day I scan the news, several times a day I scan the news, and it shapes my view of people and the world. Absolutely. And these are people who mostly I know, the older ones, and who (laughs) judgment I abhor, and yet they still affect me. Yep. Um, Second of all, we saw with Trump an unbelievable ability to go round over through against and roll over the media he may have been i think he had an amazingly amazing communication skill set because he could get a message out and he had and a bit like winston he was winston on steroids <laughs> he could 
have them screaming at him about why he was so bad. Oh, like and a, like Don Brash with his Oriwa speech. Hmm. And all they were doing was amplifying his support. And it they was, can't themselves, they couldn't ignore him. I, I find Trump an enigma because I think, the, I mean, I, and, and I'm sorry if I offend anybody by saying this, I found the man revolting, but yeah. you couldn't turn away from him. You couldn't I loved him. I absolutely lots of people do. Lots of people yeah. do. I look at him and I think there's. I, I never want you anywhere near the presidency again. But by God, he enacted some things that I supported. Well, I I love and the I underdog. I love the underdog, and so the and then the fact that he would take everyone on mm. and stay on course. Now, this is just. It was just my favorite moment with him politically was when he said he's going to build a wall. And I thought about that. How do you explain, how do you explain immigration policy, right? Because it's so nuanced, it's so complicated. And America clearly has a total problem with illegal immigrants and illegal immigration. And you can imagine Hillary Clinton having a 400-page policy document and be focusing group it, group it, and he came out and they said, what's your policy? So I'm going to build a wall. Mm. And in that moment, you knew so much about him and his politics because he captured, like, you know exactly where he stands on immigration, right? He's going to build a wall. But then it even got funnier because the left went nuts. The media went nuts. They went war, 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 war. It was down here as a story. How terrible it is. He's going to build a wall. Well, how do we feel? We've got this whole ocean. Maybe we should build a bridge so we don't have a wall. You know what I mean? It was nuts. And and he was, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then they decided they had an attack on him. And they said, oh, it's going to cost a lot of money. Who's going to pay for it? And they asked him that. And he said, Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered with that stuff because because um, I don't know because Winston used to do that. Winston would throw yes. things into a conversation, knowing that it was going to blow the conversation up, and and he was clever enough to know that he was yes. doing that. I never attributed Trump with those sorts of smarts, so I don't know whether he was doing that because he was smart and he knew the impact that it was going to have and it was going to amplify in the way it did, or whether he just had the ability to say things that the media would pick on without actually realizing what he'd said. And I still mm. don't know. I still don't know. Mm. I, I I I attribute. Winston is being smarter than Trump, and maybe that's unfair. Oh, I think it definitely is. Um, I didn't know of Trump before he really won, because uh, I'm not a TV person. But when I look back and think that he had that top-rating series for what, like 17 years or 12 years or a long, long time, he actually has an ability um, to reach into people and to be persuasive. And there is so much about him that's arrogant, New York, brash, American, um, up you, sort of couldn't give a stuff that you don't like. I couldn't imagine him having as a dinner guest because, you know, we're British and we're reserved. But uh, to me, he had all the right enemies. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone that was attacking him, I was against. And so... Do you think he'll have another crack? I think he will win. I don't think it's a good idea, but I think he will win. I think he is that good, and he's that. Um, I got a big black mark against him because he went wrong on COVID, 
And I was very disappointed in him. And he had good advisors and, he, you know, they got sidelined by the machine. Um, in fact, I wonder if we were, even would have had the COVID pandemic if it hadn't have been for Trump because they came at him with he wasn't doing enough. Mm. Um, but anyway, I don't know. And, I mean, it's not my job to promote Trump or anything, but I'm just being honest. Uh, when he came here's, along. Here's what's interesting about Trump, Rodney. And, and so we were talking before about the, the slide of civilization over the last 60 or 70 years um, and the fact that we've moved away from our traditional values. But, but it's interesting. When I say that, I'm talking primarily about New Zealand, Australia, Canada, to a lesser degree, the United Kingdom. The States is kind of an enigma because it sits outside of that. And I'll tell you why I say that. Um, when you look at the the religiosity of society, for want of a better word, the imposition of faith on politics, and it doesn't happen here at all. You've you've quite clearly articulated that that even Luxon's too scared to say that he's Christian, and you know that Stephen Harper was an outlier in, in Canada a few years back, and that he was quite open about his faith. But that's unusual in most of those nations. But in the states, and I can name them, Ray, just in the last forty years, Reagan, George Bush, George W. Bush, Trump. All of them have not only been people who've had some form of faith, but they've actually allowed that faith to to shape their, their view Carter. on foreign and domestic policy, um, which makes the states quite different to, to to most of the rest of the Western world. And, and you they, could hardly they, get in. You could hardly get in in America without expressing your exactly, religious. exactly. And in, and in fact, in the states, it's a contrast between you know you talked about the forces of light and darkness before, and I think that's probably overegging it a little, little bit. But certainly, the difference between uh, a Christian worldview on the one side, articulated by those four presidents that I just mentioned, and and the flip side of that, the Obamas and the Clintons and the, the Bidens, who've, who've articulated a completely different perspective, and it's a battle between those perspectives. And I think that's why that's so the American political landscape is so divided. I hadn't seen that in presidential terms, but mm. you're right, Clinton, Biden, Obama. Yep. And those three have... Maybe I was a closet Christian because Clinton, from the day he appeared, gave me the woolies. And when he came to New Zealand, I had the opportunity to meet him, and I didn't because wow. I just um, – he just came across to me as so fake. And I guess – and, I mean, it's funny because I'm thinking about, like, Trump, there's so much that is not me and him. Um, but can I say this? On the other side of the ledger, Robert Kennedy Jr. is doing a Trump in the same way. There's an opportunity now with social media to have the media coming after you, all guns blazing, and amplifying you. I mean, I think he could surprise everyone. Which, if because... you use it correctly. He comes from a different tradition, though, remember. The Kennedys are back from that tradition. There's a period prior to the 80s where there wasn't actually all that much difference between the right and the left. They were they mm. were basically both sides of the centre, and they both held traditional values. New Zealand, Australia, the states, everywhere. So, so, And Kennedy comes from that tradition that precedes that, which I assume still informs some of his politics and some of his thinking. So, you know, m- maybe that's been a factor in that ascendancy. This decline that you identified from yep. individualism and religious values, what caused it? 
uh, in, 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 most, in the most simplistic terms, uh, without wanting to put your listeners off, um, it was actually predicted 2,000 years ago. I mean, Christ refers to it. He calls it the great falling away or the great apostasy. And, and it's clear as the nose on your face. It's, it was a period, and, and it's clear now that it was after it was after World War II, it was a period where Christianity would go into rapid decline. And that rapid decline of Christianity has has brought about the, the the vacuum that that created has created an opportunity for new values and new ideas that we wouldn't even have countenanced forty or fifty years ago. Um, but in a more general sense, it's, it happens slowly. First that doesn't in, put me off. No, but it, but it will some people. It will some people because yeah. they see that as you know that's that's reverting to. But to, you see, you could be you could be not a believer in God. Yep. You could be uh, not a believer in the supernatural. But you could still observe it. Yep. Right. Well, for me, the observation is as obvious, but it won't be to everybody. Yeah. Be, but in yeah. terms of the process by which that happened, you can see it, and it really happened. It really started to gain some traction in the eighties, and that was that was the move away from an inst- at an institutional level, the move away from traditional values to to these different values. And I'll give you a really good example of that. The one I hold up often it used to be an organisation. You remember it called Marriage Guidance. Yes. The purpose of marriage guidance was to help people to counsel them to keep their marriages together. That organization, and I'm pretty sure it was in the 80s, correct me if I'm wrong, changed its name to Relationship Services. Why did it do that? Because the idea of protecting marriage was outmoded and outdated, and it was moving towards something that was seeing more being seen as being more in concert with the values of the time. Now you can take that analogy and you can apply it to dozens of different organizations and in this country and around the world where there was a slow erosion. And so the committees, if you like, and the boards of those organizations changed over time and will replace with people with a different set of values to the people that have traditionally been the people that had run those organizations. So it was an insidious thing. Also happened within political parties. So political parties went from being, I mean, you you think back to, I think the the, the early 80s, I think the National Party had 200,000 members. I'd be surprised if it had more than 10,000 now. Labor the same. And the people that left and the people that replaced them were people with completely different value systems that, as I said earlier on, informed the politics and the policies of those parties and changed them into the creatures that they are now. So I see that as being, none of this happened by accident. It wasn't that there was a coordinated, well, I don't think there was, it wasn't that there was a coordinated strategy to do this. It happened by osmosis over a period of time, but the implications and the results of it are now really clear in respect of where we are as a society. So we have Trevor Loudon on, and he's excellent. Yep. And he sees the influence of communist thinking, right? Yep. And he says, you know, there's a uh, communist cells that are wanting to destroy the West, the capitalist system, and they don't care what they'll replace it with. They just have an overall view that it should be destroyed and they'll jump on movements to promote that destruction. We have the, what would you call them, the critics of critical theory who criticise postmodernism or um, wokery and they see this movement of intellectualism uh, that started with the Frankfurt School in New York, spread out in the 60s, and is now the dominant paradigm for thinking at university and in government departments. Uh, We have a third thing, 
which is it's a conspiracy by the World Economic Forum and uh, Bill Gates and this elite groups who are conspiring to take tyrannical control over societies. And funnily enough to me, they're all plausible possibilities, right? Because I struggle to explain how thinking people can have done what we have done to ourselves. And then you have this fourth one, which is, I think I've got this. It's a failure to defend our values, which are Christian values. And the failure may well be supernatural. Oh, I, I, I completely agree. Although it's interesting, those those groups you mentioned, because I think that's transient. I, I understand that, you know, the WF with Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and, and, and the Gates Foundation and all these other groups. But if you go back 40 years, Rodney, the same thing was happening. It was just different groups. The Bilderbergers or the Trilateral Commission yes. or the CFR or the Illuminati. It, it, the, the groups changed the name. Or, and, and you mentioned communism. That's another one. I, I prefer to look at that just as anything, that, that, as, as sort of the, the godless counter to, to Christianity. And it takes all sorts of forms. Communism was one, but there are many others. So I look at those things and I say that the, the people and the organizations and the faces change. But the agenda doesn't, and I use the agenda not necessarily in a in a coordinated term, but more around where society's been going over a period of time. Um, so, so yes, yes, that's happening. Is is it happening in a coordinated way? You could draw an inference to say that there's a, and, and again, hate using these terms because I because I'm conscious of the fact that you know not everybody shares my value system, but a satanic overlay to that if you want to use a a sort of a biblical term, which is the idea that it's sort of being coordinated spiritually. Maybe I, I I personally buy into that. I know that not everybody does. But here's an interesting overlay to the whole thing that probably people don't think about. That is that if I was right in what I said before, and that was in the idea that the, we're in a period of time that was prophesied, the great falling away, the great apostasy, whatever you want to call it, um, then then we should not only should we expect this, but we should actually welcome it because it's part. I, I describe myself as a Christian fatalist, by which I mean I don't think this is going to get any better. I don't think that there is something that we can do, whether we're Christians or conservatives, that's actually going to change this downward progression. In fact, I think it's going to get worse over the next 20 or 30 years. And when you talk about your girls and the society in which they're being raised, I think that society is going to move toward the worse, not toward the better. But from a Christian perspective, that's actually an encouraging and exciting thing. Because there's certain things that happen after that which that warning was was preceded. It was about telling us to look for that because things will happen after that that, are, mm. that from a Christian perspective, are positive and good things. Hold that thought, actually, and we'll come back to it. Uh, you're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, uh, and we're talking with Ashley Church, who is hard to describe now because <laughs> uh, he was the property guy. He was the New Market Business Association. He was... Uh, an investor and a successful businessman. And now he's been this long time doing this deep thinking and writing and reading about the whole picture rather than just like me picking off bits of policy and trying to work it out, you know, looking at whether the world's warming, whether CO2 is an issue, whether welfare is good or bad for society in terms of numbers. 
rather than looking at the world in terms of values and um, what underpins where we're at. And I'm clearly of the view that Ashley's been right all along and I've been wrong. Tell me this, Ashley, this prophesied decline, has that never happened before? Uh, well, society's risen and fallen over over hundreds of years. We've had, you know, we, and and to, to be fair, I'm putting that in the context of Western civilization. I mean, if you go to South America, you had the Mayans, the, the Aztecs, the Incas. If you go to Southeast Asia, you had the Mongols. You've had lots of civilizations that have risen or fallen in the past. What I'm talking about specifically is, is the stuff that's defined by Christianity. So, or, or, or the, the value system that Christ initiated uh, over 2,000 years ago, that that hasn't happened before. So, so the decline that we're going through now, there'll be there'll be people who will say, "Well, hang on, the Roman Empire collapsed, and that was underpinned by Catholicism, and that's true." But but society was never transformed in the way that it was by the, the Protestant trans, uh, Reformation that I talked about earlier. That uh, that as a, that was the golden age. Of Christianity and it and it, and it uh, started pretty much with Elizabeth the first Henry Henry VIII's daughter, and uh, it carried on right through till about 1950. And that period of time was, depending on who you are and how you're looking at it, the, the golden era of Christianity in respect of its impact on the world and its ability to change the world and its value systems. The decline that's taken place since 1950 hasn't happened before because that golden age has never happened before. You're not the first Christian to believe that they're living in the end of days. No. Like it's been a common theme. Yeah. Why would you be the lucky generation to be living in the end of days? <laughs> That's a really astute question. Uh, I don't ascribe to many of the views. So there's a view with there are several different views of the end. Within, and, I'll, and I'll give you five of them real quickly just to educate your, your listeners. There's a, there's a view called uh, preterism, which basically believes that all of prophecy happened uh, in it had finished by the first century. There's a view called amillennialism, which is held by the Catholic Church and the Anglicans and Episcopalians if you're in the States, which basically says that it's all symbolic. None of it's actually real. It's just symbolic and God's not actually coming back. He's just going to rule in your heart, if you like. Um, and that the Pope's, the, you know, the, the, the head guy. Uh, and then there's three other views, which are all called premillennial views, one of the, or, or millennial views. One of them is postmillennialism that says that Christ can't come back in the, until the end of an, era, of, of an age of a thousand years of peace and light, which will be created by Christians, which is pretty hard to buy into. Then there's two others. There's one called historicism. Historicism basically says that uh, prophecy has been happening for the last 2,000 years and it's been fulfilled um, and so most of what we what we read in books like Revelation and Daniel has already happened. And then the last one, which is probably the most influential because it's the one that evangelicals in the States hold, is a view called premillennialism. And premillennialism says that all this stuff's going to happen at the end of the age right now. And they buy into that. And they, there's a whole range of stuff that underpins that. And a lot of your listeners will be premillennialists, even though they don't may not realize that they are, because they buy into things like the idea of an antichrist, a mark of the beast, uh, a tribulation period when Christians are persecuted, um, uh, and a thing called the abomination of desolation, a rebuilding of the temple in, in, in Jerusalem, and a whole range of other stuff, which I believed for about 25 years, Rodney. I was I was right into that. I loved it. Um, read about it, understood everything I could. Started to change my views on that about 15 years ago to the point now where I reject almost all of those are future. 
fact, I would argue that almost all of them are in the past or are misinterpretations of scripture. So to answer your question, which is why would I believe it's, uh, that this is the lucky generation? I don't. Um, in fact, uh, the the one of the things that this group believes is this sort of thing called the rapture, which is this idea that all of these people will be protected and taken away before all these terrible things happen. Now, my question to that, it's not that I just believe in a rapture, but my, my question to that would be a bit like what you just asked, which is why would you take the wealthiest, fattest, greediest, <laughs> um, <laughs> most disobedient generation of Christians in the last 350 years and 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 protect them and save them when you've allowed 350 years of devout Christians who've actually lived their faith and been decent people uh, to have been martyred and killed in all sorts of hideous ways. And the answer to that is you wouldn't. So it makes no sense. Um, so I don't buy into that. Now, that will put off a lot of your listeners because most of the people who might up until now have thought, yep, great, agree what you're saying, we'll disagree with I, that. You shouldn't say about put off our listeners because my my feeling when I get the feedback from my listeners is we're a hardy bunch, <laughs> right? And we don't mind listening to people who we think are wrong. And we aren't offended by wrong ideas. And we enjoy listening to people who are articulate, who have thought about it, who have read about it, and are putting a strong case. And if it's a case that we disagree with, we really perk up our ears because that's how you learn and we might change our mind. So go for it. Well, interestingly, so so rather than going into too much detail about what I just described, I've basically I've articulated it all in a book, which I'm just putting the finishing touches to, um, which I'm going to self-publish in the next few months called Daniel Decoded, which actually deals with this topic and deals with why premillennialism is wrong, what those prophecies really mean, and most importantly, why it matters right now, because it does. Um, why is prophecy important? Oh, prophecy is important because it's a guide to the future. Incidentally, prophecy, if you think of it in its most broad and general sense, prophecy is the whole basis of Christianity because it's about the future. So the whole point of Christianity was a hope for the future. It was this thing called imminence. So the idea, so so what Christ did was he created this era of imminence, which meant that he could return at any time. And, and if you go right back to the first century of the church, they believed in imminence then. There was the idea that Christ could return in the next moment. And that's carried on for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened. But imminence has been consistent all through that time. So prophecy is simply an extension of imminence. Prophecy is the idea that we're looking forward toward the future because we've got a hope for something that's better than what we've got now. And and, and, and this is why in adverse circumstances, like we've been through for the last three years, I have loved meeting Christians yep. in the protest and uh, through the COVID experience because they actually have a hope and joy in their heart. And someone like me was pretty down because everything that I believed in was being trashed all around me. And I couldn't see it getting better. Totally. And it was joyless and hopeless. I talked before about uh, that that prophecy that Christ uh, mentioned about um, the the great falling away, the great apostasy, and that actually finishes with an interesting quote. He says, "When you see all these things happening, look up, because your redemption draweth nigh." Which is exactly what you're saying. He's basically saying, when all this bad stuff starts to happen, that's a good sign because it means we're right toward the end. But you must be looking forward to it as a Christian because you believe 
when you die, you go to heaven. So even if you don't get this end of days redemption, is that the right phrase? Well, it would be for people that believed in it, yeah. Okay, sorry. I feel as I'm walking on a philosophical uh, pinhead. Um, but you you know either way, you're okay. Yes, there's a but to that. There is a but. So you're right. So so there's there's a there's a platform, there's a minimum standard, if you like. So if you think about university, there's a minimum standard for admission, which all Christians meet. Uh, and and so that sort of gets them in. It's you know it's a ticket into the house. But then there's almost if, if you like, and I'm and I'm not being flippant here, but it's a great way of describing it. There's then there's like a loyalty scheme. So so beyond just getting in there, there is there is very clear inference that there are certain things that you can do to improve your lot. Uh, once once you've sort of qualified, you'll um, be in a business so, class heaven. Pretty much, yeah. Really good yeah. way to describe it. So for I'll me, be in, I'll be an economy because I'm yeah. late to the party. <laughs> well, so, so probably so will I. But so I've <laughs> the last fifteen years as and and look to be honest with you, Rodney, it's because I've got older, and I've started to focus less on business and wealth and all that other stuff that was so important to me for such a big part of my life. I'm now starting to focus on my Christian legacy, for want of a better word. And so the stuff that I'm focusing on now is around. What can I do to spread what I know? What can I do to leave a mark so that when I die and I stand before my maker, I will have actually done something that will have made my life worthwhile rather than just taking up resources and being on this earth. And so I'm looking much more increasingly at how I can use my life to actually impact on other people. Because if I'm right in what I believe, I want other people to believe it as well. And I know in the past that's a real creepy thing for a lot of people. They said, you know, people trying to evangelize them. I shy away from that. So, so, but now for me, it's about how can I live my life in a way that I write and I do things that if people want to know more, they can do exactly what you've done, which is that they can approach me and they can talk to me and I can talk mm. about those views without making it into a creepy thing, you know, where I'm sort of imposing those views on them. Wouldn't you rather live a good life and lead a society, leave a society that was flourishing, prosperous, and positive? rather than one that was on a downward trajectory. Oh, of course. Of course. I just don't okay. think that, I just don't think that's going to happen. I, I I'm clearly of the view that what we're in now gets worse, not better. How I know about, that's depressing, but <laughs> yeah, how about if you were living in Europe in nineteen forty? Oh, yeah, different. Well, well, it's interesting you should say that because after the war, there was an enormous sense of prosperity and hope yes. that came out of the war. It was the sense that we could make a better society, we could transform ourselves in our own image, and 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 you can see that permeating through a whole range of things: the creation of the United Nations and a whole range of other initiatives that came out of that, all with the best of intentions, and all in a lot of cases underpinned by Christian values, but got hijacked progressively over the next forty or fifty years. Hijacked by whom? Oh, no one person and no one no one agenda. It was it was a series of things. I mean, if you you know, we come back to what I said before, you could sort of put a satanic overlay on it. Mm. But but it was a it was a a on the one side, it was the abdication of Christian values, which was a progressive thing, and on the other side, it was filling that vacuum with other ideas and other values. If you read uh, Jonathan Kahn's book, you mentioned at the beginning Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods. Um, you you will see some of this book, some of the stuff in that I book. I can't wait to read this book because he's clearly Great. had a big impact on you. 
it, it, well, it's, it's had a impact. I wouldn't say it's had the only impact because I've read a lot of stuff which has impacted on my thinking. And probably the biggest one was something like an obscure thing I read many years ago by a guy called Ellis Schofield. But Khan's books are good in that he ties what he's saying back to specific events and, and, and stuff that you can actually say, yep, one plus two equals uh, equals three. Um, can, and you, can you live in a, can you have Christian values? in a society without having Christian faith. Oh, I think we I think we did that for a long time. I th- I think there's a period from for argument's sake 1950 to about 1965 where we where a lot of people did exactly that. They moved away from Christianity. And to be fair, Rodney, there were a lot of people I think after World War II who may have lost their faith simply because they thought, how could a God allow that to happen? You know, 60 mm. million people to die. Understandably so. Holocaust, all of that stuff. Who who maintained Christian values, whether they wanted to or not, simply because that was the basis of the society in which they'd grown up. It didn't necessarily hold the 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 belief system that their, their parents and grandparents might have it's, held. It's so fascinating, actually, because where I got to on this is you can't reason all the way. Look, I've read David Hume, I've read all the philosophers, but I worked out in that COVID, you can't reason your way to what is good and why you should live a good life and do the right thing. Because you start off with no premise. no premise, And we're living now in this upside-down world which is brilliant in a way to experience. I, I wish I had your optimism that about it, but it's brilliant in this way. We're living in a world where to lie to children is good and to tell them the truth is bad or to lie to everyone is good, but to tell the truth is bad. Yep. You know, So the obvious example is to tell people that they can become a girl if they choose to. And if you say they can't, you're a terrible person who should almost be locked up. So there's a word that underpins that, and it underpins that entire value system, and it's the word relativism. Yes. So all of those things are based on relativism. Yes. Morality is relative. It's relative yes. to the situation. It's relative to the circumstances. And now it's relative to the individual. So and that can never be the case. No. Because no. it, it, it's when you explore it, you realize it can't go anywhere. No. And and you can't you can't create utopia. And yet that's exactly what underpins wokeism and, and, and some of the stuff on the alt left. It's this idea that man can create utopia in his own image. We don't need mm-hmm. God. We can discard the idea of morality and God and religion and we can create it ourselves. And all we need to do is bring keep people together in some sort of sort of socialistic utopia where people can choose to be whoever and whatever they choose to be. Um, and that society will just magically transform itself. And and here's the thing, and you take the negative influences, and in our society that basically means conservatives and Christians, and you get rid of them because because they're a a handbrake on this utopia that we're trying to create. So that explains, too, why everyone is me, 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 me. Of course, based on selfishness. And and again, Jonathan Kahn, go back to Return of the Gods. That's simply a reversion to what was happening. What people forget, this is really important, what people forget. So we think about when Christ walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and we think about the society which he lived, which was in Israel, 
um, in uh, around Jerusalem and the shores of the Galilee. And, and we look at that society, and what we forget is because is although the, the 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 Israelites had done some pretty terrible, repeatedly done some pretty terrible things over the previous thousand odd years, they were a society that was still to some degree guided by their gods. So they had a moral system. What we forget is that surrounding them were nations that were involved in terrible things. We had Baal worship, Molech, Chemosh, slaughtering their own kids. Um, uh, sacrificial ritual uh, sacrifice of of people, all sorts of things going on, um, um, a complete degradation when it came to sexual morality, etc. And what's interesting is that we're now reverting back to that stuff. Yes. So, so we've gone from where we were two thousand prior to two thousand years ago, prior to the time of Christ, and what societies were doing. Christianity reformed society slowly, but it happened. So, over a period of about two thousand years, it made its way first out of the Middle East, then into Europe, and then throughout the entire world. What they call the Great Commission within Christianity. Now we're going back to a reversion of all those things that were taking place prior to the time of Christ, and that's the point of Jonathan Cahn's book: is when he, the, the return of the gods. Is that we've gone from a period of 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 you know a, a terrible period in world history to a period of reformation where we had personal responsibility and people had a moral code back to a period of history where there's basically carnage and and no regard for anybody else but but ourselves because my parents lived in a time when no way did they live their life for what was good for them and made them happy? Yep. It was always about you in the future. Yeah. It was about their kids. Yep. It was about working. It was about producing. And here's the funny thing. I know of no one more joyful and more happy than my parents. Isn't it ironic? How ironic. And now you see these 17, 18, and 19-year-olds, depressed, demotivated, and their parents looking you in the eye and say, I just want little Johnny to be happy. And yet here's the irony. But we, that's we, a weird thing, right, to be happy. We, we live in warm homes. We live in probably the, you know, insulated homes with standards. We live in a society where where we've reached a level of medical progress, where where our, our standard of living and our and our longevity has increased exponentially. We earn good money. We can buy the things that we want. We can travel. All that stuff that we thought was going to make us happy, and it hasn't. It hasn't made us happy. You're quite right. You go back to the 40s and the 50s and prior to that with people who lived in much more humble surroundings and conditions, like your parents, who were actually happier. Yeah. And I and I challenge anybody listening to this to say that the reason for that was because there was a, a value system that underpinned society that gave us certainty, even if you didn't ascribe to it. That's right. So my father was religious and my mother not. Right. And uh, But she lived a Christian value set and had a very joyful life but she just didn't believe in the metaphysical thing and i found out late in life that she wasn't a realist you know she was like a 60s free thinker and um she's probably the cause of our problems her thoughts no <laughs> um but it's very interesting and she kept that all to herself hey full disclosure i'm not a realist either i'm a i'm a republican so that's uh, that Surprise you you well, I thought I thought the Queen was sort of God's representative, but well, um, we, you and I got to have a lot of philosophical discussions <laughs> to get me through all this. Um, but it's that 
me, me, meism. You know, like you get divorced because I'm no longer allowed to fulfill myself with this woman or this man. Yeah. And the kids will be better off if I'm happy. Yep. And that's literally how we live now. And then I have a gender soul. So, yes, I've got all the male attributes, but in me is a gender thing and it may not match. And I'm unhappy because I'm not matching my gender true self. And this is just endless in the media. And when you when you read when you read the news, it's all about the person who's writing and what they're going through. And it's oh, and a celebrity. And we don't we admire a celebrity who's living this chaotic life. Um and I was doing drugs and I was depressed, but I'm worked my way through it and I'm now Buddhist. And out there is a good Christian farmer with his wife, and they're working together on the farm, and they're producing the most wonderful produce, and we're doing everything we can to stop them. So I wrote an article about this about six months ago. I talked about who our role models were in society, and, and you're oh, absolutely funny. right. If you look at, I mean, and I think the the example I started the article with, I was talking about Adele, and I love Adele's music. Adele's got a superb voice; she sings like an angel. But uh, but she's not somebody I'd want my kids espousing their values from. All Kanye West, or you know, you can let whoever you like, and a, a dozen people who who you know can entertain well, and you know can sort of earn a shill from from acting or singing but it doesn't make them role models and yet that's exactly what our society's done it's held these people up and said you can sing well so we should listen to you when it comes to climate change or social conditions or or when in fact they're leading debaucherous terrible lives that that we wouldn't want our kids exposed to and so that that goes some and that's been going on for decades and that goes some way to what explaining why our compass is so far off it's because the people we listen to are people that actually aren't deserving of that attention Tell me, I've got some questions for you. Yes. And they're not meant to belittle your faith or <laughs> to um, challenge you, hmm. but maybe help us. Sure. And you may not have the answer. But, like, the best. why did we, you know, why did God have the Greeks who I loved? I know they had slaves, and I know if people got in their way, they'd think nothing of genocide. Why did Jesus not come for them? And I'm 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 meaning this. I'm not Ooh, trying to. Why? <laughs> why? Why would that happen? Oh, I can easily explain that. Oh, so, and this is this is my view. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right, but this is my view. The entire purpose of life, in my view, is is to is to use that three score and ten or whatever it is that we actually have to get ourselves right with God. That's that's the whole purpose of life. And that's happening within the context of a of a six thousand year period. And I'm not saying, incidentally, that the world's only existed for six thousand years, but I'm saying that this experiment or this this um, uh, process that we've been going through over the last few thousand years has lasted for about six thousand. Is that years. the start of Judaism? 
Uh, no, Judaism actually only goes back to about 4,000 years ago. So there's okay. a period preceding that. I mean, if you wanted to put it into sort of empirical terms, there's a period just prior to the flood and there's a whole lot of other stuff that went on, but I won't bore you with that. But to answer your question, so so the whole process was about how what we did, how we as individuals, men, women, um, uh, use the time that we had available to us to, to avail ourselves of the opportunities provided to us through by God. Contingent on that was that God couldn't actually make those things happen. It had to be something, it had to be free will. It had to be something that we chose to do for ourselves. So when you look at examples of things that have happened throughout history and some of the hideous and terrible things, not just the example that you gave, but things that are much, much worse that have happened over that period of time, the whole point of it was that those are things that we did. Those are things that mankind did. Those are situations and circumstances that we made happen. God didn't make the Second World War. God didn't create Hitler. Those circumstances happened as a result of things that men did that led up to that. And I can use that same analogy and I can apply it to pretty much everything that's happened throughout recorded history. So the point of it all was not that God was going to come in and keep fixing it. It's the same as when, you know, if you want to bring it down to a personal level, when God says, why, when people say, why does God let good people die? Well, he didn't let them die. We, we've created, we wound this clock up. And, and, and the process of history over the last 6,000 years has been of our making. Now, some of that's been good. I talked before about the Protestant Reformation and, and the massive and positive influence that had on Western society over the following 300 years. That was man's doing. It was, it was alluding back to something that had been provided to them in the form of the, of the Christian faith, but it was something they did themselves. So that was a, that's why I talk about that being such a positive period of history. But equally, you can apply that same measure to all of the stuff that's happened in history that's been bad. We've done it. It's of our making. God didn't make those things happen. I'm, I'm sure it grieves his heart to see those things. But it's all toward our final point at which we stand before him and he calls us to account for the things that we've done and not done during our life. So I'm picking on the Greeks. You go. The Greeks worshipped multiple gods. They did. Wrongly. True of lots of civilizations, but yeah. And they didn't find the right God. And therefore, they couldn't live a Christian life. Christ hadn't been born. Um, I look at that and I struggle because I think they didn't even have a chance Oh, that's uh, yes. I see where you're going with this question, and I've I've had the same question. And so you can apply that not just to them; you can apply it to the Mayans, the Aztecs, yes. the Hittites, the Assyrians, any culture that existed prior to Christ. And you can say to yourself, "Well, they didn't have the opportunity to make the choices and the decisions that people post Christ have made. Therefore, how was that fair? If they didn't, if if they didn't have Christ, they didn't have the the framework that Christ put in place. How was that fair? Have they been discarded on the scrap heap of history simply because they were born at the wrong time? The only way I can answer that is by there's a period after the one that we're in at the moment called the millennium. It's a thousand year period in which Christ rules the earth, and um, and which we see what happens under the under a theocratic state where where God's basically uh, running things. I believe, and I can't prove this, but I believe that all of those people that existed prior to Christ, um, aborted children, uh, people that have died too early, people that have, have lived in the last 2,000 years but haven't been exposed to the Christian message, all of those people over that 1,000-year period will get their opportunity to do the same thing that we've done, 
and live a life where they can actually mm. prove that they where they stand in respect of that equation. Now I can't prove that, but that makes sense to me. That makes mm. sense to me in respect of what that thousand year period is about. It's about taking all those people and giving them an opportunity. And if you add it up over that period of time, how many people might have existed? Because if you remember, and you probably already know this, Rodney, but if you look at the population of the world, it was pretty consistently about a billion for almost all of that 2000 year period and probably before that it only took off from about the beginning of the 20 uh, the, yes. the 19th century so that's not a lot of people it's probably no. it might be 10 12 15 billion people in total so certainly not huge numbers greater than what we've currently got no. so i can see how perfectly practically how that could apply don't know it to be true but it makes sense to me in respect of 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 the the idea of divine justice if i can use that term now i took it that you were the big flowering was the rise of Protestant, Protestantism. Protestantism, yep. Now, would that have happened without Martin Luther nailing his... No, he wasn't the him? only fact. He was a big factor. He wasn't the only one. So okay. Martin Luther, for those who don't know, was a Catholic who, who started to question... Um, the the precepts and the dogma and Catholicism, and he ended up with ninety five what he uh, ideas that were challenges to Catholicism, and he uh, nailed them to the Wittenberg Gate. Um, but there were a whole range of others at the same time. Um, there was there was a guy by the name of um, uh, John Calvin, uh, and and who was also instrumental, um, and and hugely instrumental in terms of you and I being alive and being here right now was Henry VIII. Yes, Henry, Henry VIII, uh, his main role was that he created the the Anglican Church. And interestingly, he didn't do that for, for altruistic and, and uh, purposes. He did it because the Pope wouldn't allow him to get a divorce. And so in order to uh, to do what he wanted to do, which was to divorce his first wife and marry Anne Boleyn, um, he created a new church and he adopted Protestantism as the basis of that church. Now, I think that was completely political and opportunist. I don't think I, I might be wrong. I don't think he was particularly uh, religious. And in fact, there's some suggestion that he died a Catholic on his deathbed. But his daughter, Elizabeth I, who became uh, queen, uh, was clearly Protestant in her thinking. And she absolutely transformed the world. In fact, if Elizabeth I hadn't lived, you and I wouldn't exist. She, she no. was that. Um, in in respect of the changes that she made to England and ultimately to where it became, where it went and 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 not moving on to becoming an empire, um, so so there were a number of people around that. Period. So what you're saying is, Protestantism was bubbling away from individuals and yep. political and marital issues, right? In yep. that funny way, but it caused this great flowering. Now. But you're saying within Protestantism there is the truth and the Catholicism was a wrong turn prior to that and continuing? Or what's one. going on in your mind about that? That's a tough one. I've changed my view on Catholicism throughout my life. If you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have said that Catholicism was satanic, and that's pretty harsh. That's uh, I don't. I, I don't think that now. Catholicism had its roots in in the fourth century, about three three uh, after Constantine. Constantine was the emperor of Rome at the time, and Constantine uh, supposedly during a battle saw a sign of the cross in the sky, and it converted him to Christianity. Prior to that, the three hundred years prior to that, Christians were treated pretty badly. They used to throw them into the um, the Colosseum, and they'd be eaten by lions or or slaughtered by by um, 
gladiators. Um, so it was pretty rough to be. So after the uh, after the uh, constant uh, Constantinian vision, that the Roman Empire over the next two hundred years basically became Christian. In other words, it adopted uh, Christianity as its faith. But and this is the bit where I always struggled. If you look at what they did, they didn't actually abolish all the other religions. They basically just imposed Christian values over the top of stuff that it was already there. So, for example, and there's lots of examples of this. Estati worship, which was a a, a worship uh, was was a religion around um, fertility and sexuality, um, simply got superimposed with Easter, and so mm. that's why you've got Easter eggs and and bunnies and things and and, and the Easter festival. Things got grafted. Oh, they just got grafted in, and and, of, and Jewish traditions got grafted yep. in. Yep. So there's lots of that stuff that got assimilated into it. So Catholicism became this big sort of compromised melting pot of a whole lot of stuff that got sort of superimposed or overlaid with Christian. And and the, the over the process of the next thousand years, that that seed of corruption, if you like, impacted on it, and it became a religion that was much about the the dogma or the traditions of men as it was about the book that it was supposed to be representing. To the point where there was an argument within the Christian Church that where the scripture differed from church tradition church tradition was preeminent which is which is terrible because um, what you're saying is it took a protestant and protestants to end slavery all and, of that and and to be prepared to die and yep. sacrifice yourself yep. to end slavery you know the british Empire. I, I do need to be clear, though, in saying that certainly during the time of Elizabeth I and the hundred years after, the Protestants were just as guilty of, 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 uh, of um, torturing the Catholics as the Catholics were of torturing the church. Sure. So, so they've all got blood on their hands. But it was ultimately Protestantism that realized yes. that every individual was important to God. Correct. And Correct. that if you were a Catholic in those times, you were part of a group. Yeah, it was it, it was a collectivist mentality. Catholicism and still it's Catholicism is still collectivist. The reason we don't recognise that is because in the Western world we've got to focus on the individual. But Catholicism at its root is a collectivist religion. Protestantism is an individual religion. It's about the individual and his his or her relationship with their God, which is a completely different thing. Um, but my when view you look on at Catholicism, when you look at the Nazis, yep, which is the modern definition of evil. Yep, right. Because they did what previous peoples had done, but with industrial might and modern communication techniques. Were they Protestant, Catholic, Christian? Well, it's interesting you should ask that. So the the best there's all sorts of historical theories and conspiracy theories around the Catholics the around the the Nazis but there is some pretty compelling evidence that the uh, the Nazi Party had a pact uh, with with the uh, with the Vatican something yes. called the uh, and I can't remember the exact name but it was between the the Italian government the Vatican and the um, well and Mussolini and of course in a funny way there's no shame in that. Is that the right word? Or there's not unique in that would be a better way of phrasing it no. because, you know, the king's brother was in with Hitler. Um, Joe Kennedy thought, you know, a lot of very smart people aligned themselves, aligned themselves yeah. and they were anti-Semitic. Yep. Um, and at Princeton, oh, my little story is at Princeton University for two years running, the what do they call them? The first years, 
were asked who they regard as the greatest living person. And for two years running, they put Adolf Hitler and Albert Einstein, who was at Princeton second. Who was, who and, was a Jew. Who, who, yes. And, and, and um, so winning a war changes everything. Well, well, you're right. And so so people realigned their values and backed away from, from that real quick, including the Catholic Church. And also, uh, too, that from a winning point of view, the Allies did not want to go through and relitigate, and it was just get over it. But so what I'm saying is it's not a unique thing to have um, a leader supporting what subsequently became evil. Correct not having that ability to see the evil inherent in the thinking. Now, but there are a lot of Protestant Nazis too. There were. Well, the how, Lutheran... dear God, how dear God <laughs> could you go to church on a Sunday and be the commander at Auschwitz? So, so let me take let me put another slant on that. So, so Catholic, England, sorry, uh, Protestant England or Anglican England, if you like, um, during the the eighteenth and nineteenth century, which was a country that was deeply religious and deeply rooted in its Christian ties, uh, produced uh, Charles Darwin, who wrote a book uh, for which the full title, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember the exact name, is "The Origin of the Species and the Inferiority of Darker Races" or something along mm-hmm. those lines which was basically a book that, and, and we forget, we, we ignore the second bit because that doesn't fit in with our sort of sensibilities in the 21st century. But but that book produced within a Christian society by somebody who supposedly was raised within those values was basically saying that white people were superior than, and that all of the other races were, were, were basically inferior to us. So you could ask the same question, how could a Christian society produce that? And I come back to the answer I gave you right at the beginning of this interview, it's because people are involved. And that is that regardless of how perfect the Christian messages, the Ten Commandments and 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 the the writings that that were derived from Christ's Christ's teachings in the first century, wherever people are involved, there is there is the opportunity for error and there is the opportunity for it to go off the tracks. And that's no less true now in the 21st century than it was in the first century when that stuff was first written. And you have to look at the modern world, actually. Let me do a wee reminder for people who we're talking to. It's uh, You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I'm talking to Ashley Church, who's had a many and varied career, but we've got him on because we're talking the big picture stuff about what we're seeing is a bewildering descent and loss of values. And with Ashley, we're tying it back to a loss of Christian faith. And we're exploring that and the implications of that. When, obviously, churches are a man-made institution. Correct. And if you're a Christian, you like to get together with other Christians and explore and practice your faith, just like if you're into 10-pin bowling or jiu-jitsu or old cars, you like to be with people and develop your interest and ideas. And the church has leaders, that that people who are full-time studying it. And so we can understand that as a feature. 
But we look at the church, and here in New Zealand we had Lord Gearing, who have stepped away for what appears to be political reasons or social reasons or the crowd sentiment have stepped away from the tenets of Christian values. And it seems to me it's hard to have respect then if the values are able to be adjusted. <laughs> right? So, like, you can't, to me, be a Christian leader and go along with homosexuals getting married, quick divorce, abortion, all those little litmus flags that we've had huge political rows over, and it's and the Christians have lost. They've lost that fight, you know. Till but none of that would have happened 40 years ago, Rodney. None of that could have happened. St. Matthew's in the City is a really good example in Auckland, which is a oh, church. gosh, I remember it. Wow. Desperately lost any sense whatsoever of Christianity, apart from the fact that it still happens to occupy a, 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 an historic Christian building. I've forgotten the name of the one on the terrace in Wellington, just down by Parliament, but the same thing, the, the Rainbow Community one. These, these, these are are organisations which have no semblance of Christianity, no semblance of the founder of their faith, and are simply Christian only by dint of the fact that they have inherited the traditions of decent and good Christians who were previously occupying those before these people have come along with completely different value systems and essentially up, uh, upended it. And so this is the, back to Chris Luxon, right, who's obviously not a minister, but he's a political leader yep. and wants to be prime minister. And good luck to them. Yep. But if you're a Christian, you can't park it for the day job. It, I, I, uh, I, I loved Parliament. I learned such a lot in Parliament. I never intended to be a politician. I never did. And I did it more as a challenge. And when I turned up, I was very scared and nervous. And then I decided to get stuck into it, you know, the whole way and see how far it would take me and there was so much that I learned and I loved and I was able to do a little bit I hope of good for people funny enough it was individual things when I look back on it rather than the big picture stuff but I loved it when there was a conscience vote and we had people in our caucus who were Christian and I loved it and I'd never fight it that they were allowed to vote with their conscience and their religious belief because I could see how you could vote against it. Yeah, I didn't look what have... happened to Simon O'Connor. Uh, I know. A... I know. The one, the one person who you knew where he would be. Yep. And I despise, I don't despise him personally. Right, I know Simon, and he's a lovely guy. I don't know Chris Luxon, but you despise the actions because you actually like people who stand up for a principle and a belief. And if you you can't be a jolly Christian and make it flexible, Christ, so died, on, Christ died on a cross, an agonizing death, yep. 
for what he believed in for us. Yep. And Luxon isn't, but I, but I take your point. Luxon isn't prepared to take a hit in the pulse. No, and and so it's come down to you're quite right. It's it's been distilled down now to the politics in the moment of what we say and what we do. So once upon a time, you're quite right. It was about you know great all encompassing um, values and 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 positions of conscience that we held and morals and personal beliefs. That's all gone now. You can't do that. We've we've distilled Parliament down to such a woke institution on the left and the right. That that there are things that you can't say or do for fear that they might lose you a portion of your your constituency and therefore um, you know put at risk your ability to be elected or re-elected and and that's what's driving Luxon that's what's driving Luxon that and the little devil called Chris Bishop on his shoulder um, <laughs> and who's whispering in his ear and and, mm. and setting some of the str- well we call him was he Chris to jab Bishop. Because he yeah. wanted to get everyone in the country jabbed, and that it was unforgivable, yeah. um, including kids. And people have suffered and died as a consequence of yep. that instruction. Yep. And there's no interest in looking at that or apology. Uh, and we also know that the jab didn't protect you, didn't stop transmission, and it was a farce. So, well, by the ha- way, just on that, just on that. Um, and this is something I've always, we're talking about Chris Luxon, I've never understood this. Luxon didn't have to agree with the parliamentary protest. And, and look, don't get me wrong, there was aspects of the parliamentary protest that I didn't agree with. But all he had to do was go down and walk amongst them, and he could have said to them, I don't necessarily agree with your viewpoints, but I'm here to listen. Absolutely. And had he done that, he would have won enormous support from a lot of people who at the moment are angry at him and have gone off looking for other places to vote. But he didn't do that, and in doing that, he squandered that support. I've never understood that. I've never understood what his rationale for that was. Neither. Or David Seymour. Or David Seymour, yeah. And the 15 years that I was in Parliament, and this was not me being the big guy, because everyone did it, bar for sometimes government MPs, which you can understand, there hasn't been a protest that I wouldn't go down and meet. But here's, here's the interesting thing. And this is the bit that, that Luxon still doesn't seem to get. And I'm, I'm convinced, like you, I've been a student of politics for a long time and I look at trends. The turning point of the Adern government, and I'm very clear on this, you can see it, the turning point for the Adern government was the way that they treated the protesters. Yes. And there were Kiwis who didn't necessarily even agree with the protest, didn't even agree, didn't agree with the cause, didn't agree with the protest. But when they saw the way that Adern's government treated them, they went, this isn't New Zealand. This isn't the way we treat fellow New Zealanders. We may not agree with them, but they've got a right to hold the views that they do. I'm absolutely certain that that was the turning point and that Adern started to slide after that event. I concur. And if it had been a mongrel mob protest or wild hippies protesting who were peaceful and they turned the sprinklers on them and called them names, it had been the same result because Kiwis have a sense of fairness. Totally. And totally. I don't agree with you, but you're standing there, and there's no way we turn on each other. No, you've got a right to you've got a right to your view. And why did Luxon not get that? Well, I have assumed that there's a Wellington bubble, the Beltway, yeah, and that they're all sitting there in their parliament. I've got a couple of theories. One was that they were actually believed their own bullshit 
which was they were terrified of catching COVID off me and every other protester if they should come down and speak with us, that they might all go back and turn blue and die. Second of all, when they declared a trespass, when they tried to trespass the protesters and the protesters didn't move a muscle, I think, I know senior civil servants would panic at that. Because ultimately, you hold government together because we don't follow the rules. We don't follow the rules that we agree with. We follow all the rules because we want to live in a rule-based society. And if someone we know breaks a silly rule and they get prosecuted, we don't actually have sympathy for them because they broke the rules. The government gets up and says, you're all trespassing, go home, and no one moves. I don't think we've ever seen a challenge to authority quite like that. It's I the literal in... definition of civil disobedience. Yes. Yeah. And and it was on the front lawn of Parliament. Yeah. The Springbok tour protest didn't occur there. So there were the protesters openly defying Parliament. And you think, whoa, the next stop for them would be anarchy. And maybe it was that. Um, I've got another funny problem with Luxon. Someone described him as a thumb. And every time I see him, I think of a thumb <laughs> with glasses on. Someone painted a picture and it just looked like it was Luxon on their thumb. And you know, you see something sometimes and you can't get it past it. But um but I feel the same about my old party, the ACT Party. I mean, why would you sign up? Like the the our parliamentary system works because the opposition oppose and critique and criticize and pull apart. It's like a it's like the judge justice system whereby the defense lawyer does their absolute best. The defence lawyer doesn't turn up and agree with the prosecution that their client is guilty. Yep. Even they, though they think they are. And the opposition shouldn't just willy-nilly agree with the government when it does the most tyrannical set of impositions because it removes its ability to critique and tease and, in fact, change their position as the facts become clearer. We we'll, we may or may not disagree on what I'm about to say. So I have a, I have a view on COVID, which is probably a little bit different. But but I'll put it to you because it'll explain why I, the, the position I've taken. So so my view, if you think back to January, February, March of 2020, and there were um, and it's interesting because you don't find much of this online anymore. But it was pretty pretty consistent at the time. There were predictions around the world that COVID would was possibly going to be um, consistent with the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu killed 7% of the world's population back in 1918. Uh, the, the early 20th century. And if you if you extrapolated that into the population of the world in 2020, that was half a billion people. So that was scary. And no one knew. No one knew whether it was going to be that serious or not. So my argument has always been that for the first nine months of COVID, that the lockdowns were actually a responsible thing to do. It was a reasonable thing to do in an environment where we simply didn't know. 
But eight or nine months in, when we started to see uh, the mortality figures around the world, and they were, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not kidding when I say this, they were about one percent of that figure. I think the figure I saw after eighteen months was six million, which was basically slightly more than a bad flu in, in any given year. Um, that was the point at which to say clearly this thing's not as serious as we thought it was going to be. We need to move quickly to dismantle the apparatus of the mandates and get society back to normal. Instead of that, the Labour government actually doubled down. It actually started taking. It, it actually started getting more authoritative and putting more measures in place. And ACT and National went along with that. So my view has always been: first year, first nine months to a year, I can kind of buy what you did. Didn't like it, but I can kind of accept it. From that point onward, everything that you did changed from being about health to being about the politics of the situation. And at that point, you lost the trust of the public. Well, you're 100% right. We don't agree on this. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was never that scary. But um, again, I take your point, because at some point, you have to back the truck out Absolutely. of the lockdown and the masks, and you have to back the truck out of the vaccine mandates. And we didn't. We got worse. Never. never. And because politically... How do you admit that the most by difference costly... to numbers, by different statistics, by saying, "Hey, look, the death rate's not what we thought it was going to be." Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because such is the power of propaganda that everyone with a platform was wrong. Yep. So, if you have the platform, it's very easy just to carry on. I can understand the Susie Wileys and the Michael Bakers and what have you, because it was their 15 minutes of fame. I get that. You know, that was never going to happen again. Of course, they were going to do that. But the politicians had no excuse. Yeah. I think no. tyrants like being tyrannical. And I think inherent within Michael Baker and intellectuals, intellectuals is a tyrannical thing where they like, they've studied away and they like to tell oh. us what to do. Yep. Michael Baker wouldn't have us having a fizzy drink at a birthday party and uh, he'd want us to lock us down for the flu, probably, because well, know. in fact, he did. They were talking. Remember, but that second year, <laughs> they were talking about the flu coming up. I mean, for God's sake, how far yeah. had we gone? And yeah. and and the scary thing about that is, a big section of our society was willing to be told what to do. That was the that, scary part of it for me. Yeah, and that's why I have re-examined my life and my thinking because it was such a scarring experience to me in a very individual and personal way and people that I trusted and thought were my friends I discovered I couldn't trust them and they weren't my friends I thought in the time of trouble I could rely on my neighbours no, they would dob me in Yep. and three girls appeared on the scene who I didn't know, and literally saved me, the Voices for Freedom girls, and made me realise I wasn't alone. And that protest made me feel whole. I get it. And but here's it's, the only, here's it's the made me appreciate, uh, actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you, I'll, okay. and I'll get told off for it. It's made me appreciate all the more people in history who have stood up against 
the current view because I had no idea how hard that was. And and credit to you for doing that, Rodney, because there was there was many many people who well, no, I pretty much had. (laughs) I mean, I went to the protest, but that was because it was a protest. But like, I didn't. I was just shell shocked. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the thing that I find really interesting. If if the government had come out in 2021 with one of Jacinda's 1 p.m. announcements on TV. And she had said that in order to, and I'm and I'm serious in this. She said if we're in order to, to battle COVID, uh, we require everybody from tomorrow to wear a a polka dot onesie whenever you're out in public. I guarantee you, the following day, ten or twenty percent of the population would have been out in their polka dot onesie. Ninety percent. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe ninety. Because I mean, there, the mask was as good as a polka dot daisy, right? Pretty much. Pretty much. And it, stupidity personified. Well, how about this? If she'd come out and said, as of tomorrow, we're going to be going house to house and vaccinating the unwilling, she could have pulled that off. Yeah, I agree. She could have pulled this off. We're taking the unvaccinated and we're sticking them on Soames Island. By the way, it goes some way toward helping to explain what happened to the Jews in in, uh, in Germany. Absolutely, went all the way. And you know what's even scarier? Chris Luxton and David Seymour would have encouraged you to go harder. Why wait till tomorrow? Yeah. And that's, again, why I value you and values and recasting everything because when I stood in that protest a lot of good Christians there and they didn't believe that a government should shut down their church there was the great Steve Oliver there and he didn't want his jiu-jitsu club shut down because it was his church in a funny way he was ministering to kids who had nowhere else and the idea that a church Saying they're following Christ would turn away someone from their door who hadn't had a government-mandated jab is absolutely horrific. Well, again, again comes back to what I said earlier about the great falling away. It shows yes. you how far. So my question for you. Yep. Is, you question. When you're looking at this, you obviously, I think I'm right, and saying you want to go to church. Me? Yeah. It'll surprise you. I haven't been inside a church for about 20 years. How interesting. Hmm. I and I am I am symbolic or or, or representative of tens of thousands of Christians in New Zealand who who have given away the whole church thing a long time ago, but are very strong in their faith. So do you talk to other Christians? Oh yes, regularly and, and and about Christian things. Yep. Yeah, a lot. I've got a very good friend who's an ex-pastor and he and I get together all the time. We talk about my book and 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 other things. No, so so no, I'm lots of contact with Christian, but I haven't been with you. I'm not a member of any uh Christian denomination or movement, haven't been for a very long time. So is this a danger? Blowing your mind, isn't it? It is. <laughs> well, because 
why why would God and Christ <laughs> like if they got the truth, right? Mm. And we follow them, why aren't we all on the same page? Oh, because people are involved. Same same answer I give to everything else. So within within if you, one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation happened, and one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation Reformation is so splintered is because people had different views to Catholicism, but not just one different view, hundreds of different views. And Protestantism is the it's a it's a collectivist view that we use to describe literally hundreds of different denominations. You know, we, we all know the big ones, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, et cetera. But, but there's a whole other level of those, what they call the evangelical movement, which is made up of churches with funky names like the Vine and the Rock or, you know, Life and all these other names, which, are, which a lot of them are Pentecostal, not all of them, who are all different from each other in that they've got, in some cases, just slightly different beliefs or slight variations in what is an overall Christian viewpoint. So there has been this massive splinter. I actually, by the way, don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I, I, I think that's actually been quite a positive thing. It's 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 kind of consistent with the whole concept of of, of competition in a capitalist society. Um, but it's but it's and then there's other people like me, and and they're a growing group as a result of what's been happening to society over the last fifty years. Who say uh, mature in my faith, understand what I believe, um, the support that I might have needed from church when I was a young Christian and needed the support of other people isn't the case anymore. Um, who who do their own thing, and and the wow. other thing overlaid on that is the internet. So so there's the ability through social media and to talk to people and and talk to other Christians uh, in a way that wasn't possible even 20 years ago. So if you were getting married, yep, and you believe in holy matrimony, yep, where would you get married? Oh, I'd probably find a. Uh, actually, it's interesting you should say that because I didn't. I went, my, my wife and I actually flew to New York and got married at City Hall in, in uh, New York. <laughs> so, so we didn't do it under the auspices of a. Um, we got married. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a nasty, quite tacky sort of a side to, to, to City Hall there where they do birth, deaths, and yes, marriage. I do. Having said that, um, my uh, son got married there. Did it right? So same place. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I understand the tradition. What's what, probably what's the better question is why do people who aren't Christians still get yes, and pastors and people to marry them if they don't buy and, it? And do you believe in being baptized? Uh, I do, but I don't. I don't believe it with the with the vehemence of people who believe that if you're not baptized in water, that somehow you're not a Christian. I do think okay. it's an important thing to do, but I don't think it's the. I don't think it's the be all and end all of whether or not you're saved or not. And let's say you. Uh, die tomorrow, mm. where would your wife have her, the funeral service for you? Oh, that's a good question. I do, not necessarily in a church. Not okay. necessarily in a church. So again, you know, that stuff's trappings. It's interesting, by the way, if you go back to the to the New Testament and you look at wherever the word church is used in the New Testament, um, that word church is actually a, a translation of, of a word that means something closer to what we would call an assembly. So okay. it wasn't a building. It yes, wasn't yes. a. It was. It, it wasn't even a collection of believers in the sense that we understand it. It was a group of people who got together often in people's houses. So, so that sense of church that we have is quite different to what it was in Christ's time. We've we've developed, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that collectivist thing that we've developed, but it's not. It's not absolutely intrinsic to our to Christianity. Christianity is about Christianity in its essence. 
uh, Rodney, is about our relationship with God. That's what it comes down to. Everything else is trappings. I get that. Um, it's been a wonderful uh, discussion, actually, and I feel as though we've we've jumped around the field. <laughs> but um, tell us again, you've got a book coming out. I have. Uh, and you've got a title for your book? I have. I've act- actually, I've got two books, and I'll tell you about both of them because they're related. So there's a nonfiction book called Daniel Decoded, um, which I'm in the process of self-publishing. I'm just finishing it off, uh, which I'll probably have out by September or October, and I'll make that available through my social media platforms and Amazon and, and a few other places, so you'll be able to buy it reasonably easily. Um, Can you and do I've an got, audio book for me? Uh, potentially, which, <laughs> with pictures, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, I've, <laughs> and I've got another book coming out, a novel, which is based on essentially what's in the non-fiction books for people who don't re- like reading sort of, you know, non-fiction, who like a story. And that book's called The Book of Dan. And it's a novel. Mm-hmm. And and the best way to describe it, it's very much in the same sort of the Dan Brown genre of sort Is of... Is it mystery. a graphic novel? Uh, no. No, it's got words, Rodney. <laughs> it's got words. Uh. <laughs> but it's, uh, but I'm, I've, I've had it test read by a few people who are all telling me it's a really good read. So, right. so can you come back on my show? When that is, but I think we'll have you back before then. I love because that. we've we've got a lot to explore. I love that. And you st- stood for national when? Uh, Eighty seven when I was a baby. How old were you? I was uh, well. I stood two years later for the Napier City Council and, and was elected to the Napier City Council. And I think I was twenty two, so I must have been twenty when I stood for the National Party. I do know that my the very first time I voted, I voted for myself, which is unusual. Does it horrify you that you put yourself up for Parliament? Oh, I look at it now. I mean, I was a child, and I'm scathing now about some of the influence that young people have on public policy. Like so, so, I, so I look back and think, oh, my God, imagine if I'd been elected. Um, and I was. I mean, I was elected to a council, and that was bad enough. Did three terms. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and it was a different national party too. Uh, and, and the other thing about that was ironic, and, again, not all you listen, I, I'm a huge supporter, still am to this day, supporter of Rogenomics. And uh, and in that 87 election, that was... That oh, was you were against high, it. Yeah. The high point of Rogenomics, and here's me saying, don't vote for this stuff. And I look back now and I'm embarrassed by that because Rogenomics yes. was, economically, it was the best thing that happened to this country. Yes, and tell me this. Um, you wouldn't be able to get through the selection process because Chris Bishop no. would see you hobbled? Well, there's several reasons I wouldn't. One of them is because, I, I mean, I've got skeletons in my closet in terms of, you know, I've been married several times and all sorts of other stuff that I'm not proud of that for me, uh, I don't meet the standard that I would expect of, of an MP. Having said that, neither does just about anybody else. Down there, but, but that's not the point. Um, and the other thing is that if I was asked my opinion on some conscience matters, things like abortion, et cetera, I, I'd have to be honest. And and that would that would exclude me from eligibility for for any. Because all Chris all Chris um, Luxon has to say is I am dead set against abortion. I, but I'll always ensure it's a conscience vote because it's a controversial issue. Yep. But here's where I stand. That was Bill English's position. No one held that against him. But Bill and yeah, had the guts. Have moved in six years. Adun has moved the landscape. Yes. Adun has moved the landscape, and I don't think that's going back. In fact, I know it's not because I know where we're at in this point in history. Well, I feel as though I'm suffering outrage fatigue. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's it's 
people email me and say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened and this will be the death of New Zealand. And you think, yeah, yeah, I started off thinking that when they banned plastic bags. Um, and I, I was outraged over I couldn't use a plastic bag for some reason. And they'd look at you like you wanted to drop an A-bomb on a Pacific Atoll or something just because you wanted a plastic bag. Um, I'm outraged out, and it's a rather clever tactic. It's almost like Rogernomics in reverse, <laughs> where it just went so fast, you just ended up exhausted yeah, by it. Yeah. Um, but again, if you don't start from a set of principles and values, you don't have an argument. Totally. Totally. And society's lost that. There, There is no, you know, the whole concept of God, king and country, the idea that you had something to fight for, that's gone. If there was gone. a third world war, I'm not entirely sure we'd be able to conscript people because there's no common denominator that ties us all together. Well, maybe, maybe nationality, I'm not sure, you know. Well, here's a good one. Uh, what's the difference between us and a communist country? Not a lot there. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Oh, we get to vote. We can choose between Chris Luxon and oh, Chippy. Yeah. Um, seriously, like free speech going, uh, in it, uh, tribalism, everything. Well, actually, it's wonderful, wonderful to catch up with you and talk about things other than property investment. Um, I would love you to tell us again the name of that author. The, the the book that we're talking about is a book called Return of the Gods, and it's written by a guy called Jonathan Kahn, who's a Jewish-American who writes on prophecy topics. It's his latest of about six books. And he's um, a rabbi, right, or was a rabbi? He is, he is a rabbi, yeah. But to be fair, rabbi simply means teacher in Hebrew. But, okay. uh, but yes, he is. Um, and Kahn is spelt how? Uh, his, there's lots of different versions of Kahn. They all mean king, uh, but his version is C-A-H-N, I think. Okay, great. So we've been talking to Ashley Church. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's been a challenging one for me. I never tripped up Ashley. Or to be fair, I might have caught him a bit on the COVID where he said, yeah, they could lock us down for nine months. Um, But it was a great discussion, friendly. Um, I learned a lot. I've got food for thought. I hope you enjoyed it. please send us a text to 2057. Uh, Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. I feel as though we are in a blessed time when we go back and have to be challenged on what we truly believe in and what our values are, what we're prepared to stand up for. Is there anything in the world that you're prepared to die for? Do you have a bottom line that you don't cross? I think we're blessed to be in that sort of time to be challenged so fundamentally. I think we're blessed to have this radio station where we can talk freely without any no-go areas and where we can have on people we disagree with, we can listen to people that we disagree with and we can give them respect and hear their point of view and discuss and debate their point of view on the basis that it improves our own thinking. And when you run up against someone who you disagree with, uh, that is actually a huge opportunity to improve your thinking about why you think what you do rather than what we see in the newspaper and politics today. And I think we're also truly blessed 
to have such great guests. And I would rate Ashley Church as a great guest who has been thinking and writing and experiencing for a long, long time and able to come on our show and articulate an amazing worldview, a challenging worldview, and the worldview that when I was growing up was how the whole world saw the world. And I think that might be what's different. Remember, send me a text 2057, email me inbox at realitycheck. Uh, dot radio you're on real talk with rodney hyde on reality check radio thank you so much for listening this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m